0: Welcome to Connect the Dots, a podcast produced by the Center for Progressive Reform, with your host, Rob Verchik.
1: Hi, everyone. Today's episode is called Fossil Fuel on Trial. Now, you know that this whole Connect the Dots series has been talking about preparing for the impacts of climate change. We've discussed food production, community displacement and relocation, industrial contamination from floodwaters, and even worker safety. And we've talked a little bit about how we might pay for those things. But today, we're going to take a deep dive into one of those options, litigation, which I'm sure, being that I'm a law professor hosting this podcast, is not a surprise to you. What might surprise you are all of the states and municipalities in the country that are currently suing fossil fuel-related industries over the impacts of climate change. So on the list of municipalities and states that have brought cases like this are the state of Rhode Island, the city of Baltimore, New York City, King County, Washington, and in California, a slew, city of Santa Cruz, San Mateo County, Imperial Beach, San Francisco. Also on that list is Marin County. Now, Marin County, as many of you know, lies just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. It's the home of the Muir Woods Redwood Forest, the Point Reyes National Seashore, San Quentin Prison, and George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch. Recently, I had the opportunity to interview Kate Sears, who serves on the Marin County Board of Supervisors. Supervisor Sears was an attorney in private practice for 16 years before joining the Consumer Law Section of the California Attorney General's Office in 2005. As Supervising Deputy Attorney General, Ms. Sears negotiated a multi-million dollar settlement with Countrywide for predatory lending, and she also supervised legal teams investigating a wide variety of fraudulent conduct relating to the financial crisis. Today, I'll be talking to Supervisor Sears specifically about the climate change lawsuit brought by the county. We'll be talking about the nature of that lawsuit, the damages they're seeking, the legal theories that are involved, and why this case is taking so long, over a year, just to determine what law applies and what judge should hear the case. Now, there was so much to talk about and so many interesting stories along the way that we decided to take the entire interview with Kate Sears and divide it up. So we're going to hear about 15 to 20 minutes of that interview Today in this episode, and then in the last episode of our series, episode six, we'll have the second part of my interview with Kate Sears. After the first part of the interview with Kate Sears in this episode, I'm going to take you to a conference in Nuremberg, Germany, where social scientists recently gathered from all over the world to discuss some of the toughest international issues related to disaster hazards, including those related to climate change. I did some really short interviews there on my iPhone, including a few that took place in a local beer garden. That's right. Researchers and activists, we get thirsty, too. So stay tuned for that at the end of this episode. So let's go to my interview with Kate Sears, a former deputy attorney general for the state of California and now a supervisor for Marin County. The county, as I noted, is suing Chevron and several other oil and gas companies for damages that the county attributes to climate change impacts. I asked Supervisor Sears why the county was bringing this lawsuit and what it hoped to achieve as a result.
0: So we already, I, I guess I could say that we have the benefit, if you want to call it that, of already feeling the impacts of sea level rise here in Marin County. And particularly in the, in my district as county supervisor is Southern Marin. And we already have um, significant impacts from sea level rise. We get king tide flooding. We call it our real high tides. Um, on blue. We have blue sky flooding at a particular area in Southern Marin that closes a major road. Um, 30 times a year already. Obviously those kinds of sea level rise impacts are exacerbated by storms um, and and wave uh, surges as well. So um, a year ago, we completed a sea level, sea level rise vulnerability assessment for our Bay shoreline in Marin County. It was a collaboration between the county and the cities and the towns. We previously had done a sea level rise vulnerability assessment for coastal Marin because we, as you know, have water on all sides. And, and the news of course and the and the information we obtained from these vulnerability assessments was was sobering i mean we knew we had impacts already but um the studies really gave us information about what to expect going forward and obviously it's expensive, right? We're suffering um, impacts already and the sea level rise vulnerability assessment really gave us information about how many properties, how many homes, how many businesses, what kinds kinds of infrastructure and roads will be impacted. So you can look at that data alone and say, this is a multimillion dollar challenge that we have as a county and that doesn't even encompass the costs for actually adapting and trying to address those impacts and hopefully try to rescue and and improve life for our residents going forward. And so, you know, as elected officials, we have a responsibility to try to do the right thing for our residents. And looking at those anticipated costs going forward, knowing that there isn't some magic supply of funding out there that will ever be enough to address sea level rise and climate change impacts uh, and being very concerned about both the impacts on the lives of our residents but also on their pocketbooks uh, we felt it was very important to take this step and file suit against the fossil fuel industry which is the group that had information they knew about the greenhouse gas emissions that were uh, created um, by the products that they were selling and they, and I can talk more in a minute about it if you like, um, about what we say in the lawsuit, but yeah, it's really about the bad faith and the deception and the misrepresentation from the fossil fuel industry that has, uh, that's creating injury to our community. And so for us it was really about, we have to do this to protect our residents' interests and make sure that it's not uh, the fiscal, the financial burden, as well as the sea level rise and climate change impact, isn't solely borne by our residents.
1: In your assessments, have you tried to estimate how much money you think it would take to become uh, climate ready to to adapt to the impacts?
0: We really haven't, and because the point of the assessment was to really assess the injury we're already having and and the injury we expect to have in the future and to give us the kind of information about impacts on transportation, on natural resources, on infrastructure, on really everything, on on recreation areas, everything that you would consider to be an asset, and also to identify areas in our county that perhaps are particularly vulnerable. So this is all really important baseline data for us to use in planning for most Appropriate kinds of adaptation going forward. And so uh, we are in the second year. We call that the project for the shoreline study, our Bayway project. And our and the second year that we're in right now is really looking at some of the adaptation alternatives. And so I'd say we're, you know, we're moving in the direction of, of putting cost estimates on. And we have um, sort of estimates if if you just take the number of properties, how many millions? I think it's actually up in the billions Uh, of value is going to be lost just by the sheer impact of sea level rise. But again, we haven't yet uh, figured out what the cost of adaptation would be because obviously yeah, you need to plan for what you want to do and, and figure out what's the mo- most appropriate. But but already, I'll tell you, there's this one area in, in um, Southern Marin that I mentioned that, that already floods 30 times a year. And it's it's at a junction of Highway 101 and a turnoff. Um, it's Shoreline Highway that is the access point for Muir Woods sure. and Stinson Beach and points on the coast. It's also one of only two roads in and out of Mill Valley and Tam Valley, where a lot of people live. And that area, and it, it, the flooding there in the storms of December of last year were extraordinary. I mean, it, it. There's a multi-use pathway that's the most heavily used multi-use pathway in all of the county, and it was completely underwater. There's a wonderful picture you can find on the internet of a stand-up paddleboard fella out there on what was the bike and ped path, um, and. So but when we have ta- when I've talked to Caltrans our state transportation agency about what can we do as soon as we can do do it to alleviate flooding in just that one area because as you can you can imagine our residents say to me when are you going to raise the road and the Caltrans transportation agency says well we can raise the road but to make that effective we have to raise the bridge that goes over Richardson Bay and that's obviously a multi multi tens of million dollar project to simply solve a problem in this one quite discreet area. And so if you take that as just a you know sort of a ballpark example, you apply that to a county of the whole, I mean, we're mm-hmm. talking tremendous sums. And this is why I think it's so important that we go after the companies who knowingly created the impacts that we're suffering from. Because we can't, it's not fair to any taxpayer to bear that burden that they did not create.
1: So th- there have been earlier cases, I know. You know, where states, for instance, have sued power companies, utilities, or or, um, or energy companies for uh, emitting carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere to create electricity. Now, you're not, or, or rather, the county isn't suing uh, power companies. The county, Marin County, is is suing the oil and gas companies that create the fossil fuels. So, so your theory, if I've got it right, is that. It's not the creation of the fossil fuels itself that's contributing uh, to climate change, but it's it's creating the fossil fuels with the knowledge that they're going to be burned and that that combustion is going to create greenhouse gases that are going to cause the problems you're talking about. Is that is that right?
0: It, it, yes that's 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 an aspect of it, so we're really suing the companies that uh it, that that created the product they manufactured the product they marketed the product, knowing that it was going to create the green, create the greenhouse gas emissions but there's a couple of reasons why our lawsuit and uh, the other cities and, and counties that have filed similar lawsuits why they're different from the earlier cases and um, a number of those earlier cases were filed in federal court, which ours is not. We are. A, this is a state court action, as you know, making state court claims. And that's an important difference. But beyond that, there's really three reasons why I think our lawsuit is important. And the, f- the first one is the state of the science. There's really been um, a, a development in the science and the ability to attribute the the amount of carbon, of greenhouse gas emissions, um, and the amount of carbon created by the products sold, manufactured, sold, and marketed by particular companies. So it's a carbon attribution. Um, is much more sophisticated than it has been in the past, and so I think that's important because we're not sort of filing a general theoretical argument. We're filing a case that has a very strong scientific basis um, in being able to, based on this cumulative carbon analysis, really say each e- that e- company X, company Y was responsible for this particular amount of greenhouse gas emissions. So that's one point. The second. The 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 second point is um, the information that we know about the impacts that we're already suffering in our county and um, based on um, predictions, based on models that are accepted in the state of California and in the scientific community about where we anticipate that trajectory going. Obviously, everything is happening faster than scientists have predicted, but we have You know important scientific models out there that are widely accepted that we have used in our analysis. And third, and in some ways perhaps most importantly, um, we have the archive of public materials at the University of Texas from the industry that really shows what the industry knew when. And it, and and I just want to give you a few examples. You've probably read the complaints, so you're familiar with this. But I think the story is so important. about what the industry knew and and what they did do and what they didn't do with what they knew. So I'll give you an example. In October of 1979, I mean, this goes way back, right? In October of 1979, an Exxon internal study found that, quote, the present trend of fossil fuel consumption will cause dramatic environmental effects before the year 2050. And the potential problem is great and urgent. This is 1979. And, and who saw
1: this report, do you think, it uh, Exxon?
0: It's a, well, it's an Exxon internal study. So you were assuming, you know, Exxon has the best scientists, they have the best engineers. They are doing this research to inform themselves. And there's emails that show that based on the information that these companies had, some of them then took steps to fortify their oil drig- drilling platforms against the impact of sea level rise. Now, did they tell any of the rest of us about this? No, they forgot to do that. And, you know, and then in 1991, just in Another sure. example, Shell Shell released a 30-minute film that was called Climate of Concern that warned of climate change's negative consequences. And it concluded, quote, global warming is not yet certain, but many think that the wait for final proof would be irresponsible. Action now is seen as the only safe insurance. So this is 1991, right? Did they, they could have put this knowledge to good use right and but did they do that no they didn't so instead of really sharing that information and ta- instead of taking steps to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from their products they launched a public campaign and this is all from these public documents right so they launched this public campaign to create confusion and doubt and discredit the scientific consensus about climate change and you know some of these advertisements are just are just striking there was one that that advertisement that said and I quote, the most serious problem with catastrophic global warming is it may not be true. And then there was another uh, advertisement that said, quote, who told you the earth was warming? Chicken Little? I mean, it, it, this is just an, um, an incredible story to me about an industry that was very well, reform- well informed and really paying attention for its own internal purposes, um, and making significant assessments about climate change and sea level rise more than 40 years ago, and then turning around and funding a misinformation campaign. So, does it is it somewhat evocative of tobacco? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. But but you know that that 's just not that 's just not right, and so it 's really those sort of three pillars, the strength of the science, what we know about the impacts on our county and and what we know based on public documents that the industry knew and what they didn 't do and what they did do with that information that I think uh, and the and the fact that we filed in state court and we have you know these are established theories of state tort law we 're not making up something new. Um, and um, you know, and it's appropriate to be in courts. Courts are, courts are the folks who make decisions about who should pay for injury um, that others suffer from. You know, the the actor's actions, and I. That's why I feel, I feel very strongly about these lawsuits.
1: That's Kate Sears, a member of the Board of Supervisors of Marin County. She's been talking about the lawsuit that Marin County has brought against Chevron and other oil and gas companies for damages they attribute to climate change. We're going to feature the remainder of that interview with Kate Sears in our next episode of this series, Episode 6, where we will also hear from Professor Tom McGarity of the University of Texas on the subject of climate change litigation. Coming up in the latter part of this episode, we'll hear a series of short interviews I had with participants in the Disasters and Culture Conference that took place earlier this year in Nuremberg, Germany. But first, a break.
2: Catherine Jones here. If you like what you're hearing today, drop us a line, give us your thoughts, or just sign up for our emails, which we promise to send sparingly. And if you really think our environment, health, and regulatory safety net is worth fighting for, we'd gladly appreciate a donation. As operations manager for the Center for Progressive Reform, I can tell you that everything we do, like this podcast, is supported 100% by donation from folks like you who care. Thanks for listening and being here to connect the dots with us.
1: Okay, well I promised you in the last 10 minutes or so, some wisdom from a conference in Germany and a little bit of discussion from a beer garden, and here goes. I've been doing some traveling recently and attended a fascinating conference in Nuremberg, Germany on the topic of disaster and culture. The event brought experts from all over the world, activists, scholars in history, in social sciences, As it turns out, I was the only lawyer there, but they were nice. Everyone was really nice, particularly when I was buying the beer. At this conference, we talked about a number of issues that we've actually discussed in this podcast series, uh, human displacement and migration, flood hazards and community vulnerability. And in between sessions, I was lucky enough to find a few folks and ask them to talk to me about the issues of the day. In particular... I was interested in knowing what they wish more people knew about the subject of disaster and climate change impacts so let me take you back to that trip to the conference at friedrich alexander university in nuremberg germany welcome to nuremberg ladies and gentlemen First on the university campus, I caught up with Megan Bradley. She's an assistant professor of political science and international development studies at Canada's McGill University. Can you tell me one thing that you wish more people knew mm-hmm. about disaster management? Sure. Well, I work a lot on issues to do with displacement, and in particular, we hear a lot about people who will be on the move in association with the effects of climate change, so-called climate refugees. And there's a lot of fear-mongering around that idea, you know, this sort of notion that millions of people will be flooding across borders. and what I wish people knew is that you know most people actually want to stay close to home if that 's possible, and most of the movement that 's associated with the effects of climate change happens within borders so if we think about you know how to best support uh, those people, yes, we need to plan for cross border movements potentially, but we also need to be thinking about how do we support people uh, to continue living near home and, and make their living continue you know being part of their social networks as much as possible in the areas where they 're from, which is really what a lot of people aspire to achieve. Here's Frank Chimeba from the University of Malawi. He's a student who is visiting Friedrich Alexander University through the Afra City Project. In my own understanding, I think disasters
2: are more complex. And I think uh, there's no one word or one sentence that can explain uh, disasters. Yeah, so, But uh, it is always my wish that uh, people should get a grasp of uh, the preparatory stage of disasters, because that's the very most important thing in as far as disasters are concerned.
1: And here's Joanne Catherine Jordan from the University of Manchester in the UK. Joanne is an environmental social scientist with over 10 years of experience as a researcher on climate change adaptation. I think increasingly there's more emphasis on the gendered nature of vulnerability to disasters, which I think is really positive. But I think one thing which is negative around that is we don't give enough emphasis on how different groups of women, for example, are affected by disasters. So not looking at, for example, issues around uh, race, age and sexuality. So in some cases, I think we're oversimplifying the issue and also, also not focusing, for example, on men as well and the relationships between men and women in terms of how people are impacted by disasters, whether well, those be sudden or slow onset. Later on at one of Nuremberg's many beer gardens, I found myself talking with Greg Bancroft, an historical geographer at the University of Hull in the UK, and also with the development expert, Terry Cannon. My iPhone still had a little juice in it, so I flipped it on. What's the one thing you would you wish people knew about, one, one thing that you wish they knew more about having to do with disaster risk reduction?
2: The one thing that I would like people to more, know more about is the fact that actually urban fire is a really important issue for about 95% of the world's population. Because we in the West live in a society where fire has become limited to a single property, we don't think about it anymore, it's invisible and therefore we don't take any cognizance and don't do anything about it. And yet, for about six billion people, it's a really important issue. And it's even in the disaster risk community, we don't think enough about it. Um, Well, hello everyone. My name's Terry Cannon. I work at the Institute of Development Studies, which is also in Britain. And I have been working on disaster risk reduction for quite a few years. And the one thing that I would like people to take into account when they think about natural hazards and disasters, is that all over the world, people interpret the dangers they face, not through science, but through their understanding of culture and the way culture is the way that they interpret the world and their lives. And this means that they may have very, very different interpretations and perceptions of the risks they face. And in many parts of the world, this means a religious interpretation of the dangers they face and this enables them to live in dangerous places because they have uh, an understanding which is rooted in culture, history, background. They can live in dangerous places which is where they have to live to get their livelihoods. So people live in dangerous places to live and they find ways of dealing with the risk and the danger by interpreting it through their culture.
1: Now I've known Greg and Terry for a while, and they give as good as they get. So after Greg ordered the first round, it wasn't long until they were asking me to answer the question that I've been asking everyone else all day long. It's me, Rob Virchik, and uh, the one thing that I wish people knew more about in thinking about disaster risk reduction is I wish we would spend more time in our societies thinking about preparation and planning rather than how to respond. To uh, disasters, it, it, it's, it's of course very important to respond correctly to disasters. But I think that that governments and communities don't spend enough time thinking about how to minimize the risks of flooding, of fires, um, of, of heat stress, and electrical outages, and these kinds of things. And uh, we have really good data, at least in the United States, showing that for every dollar. Uh, that you would spend uh, on planning and avoiding or mitigating risk, you could save six to ten U.S. dollars uh, in response costs. And we've got really good data on that, but it's always harder to spend money early than spend money later.
2: Good on you.
1: And that's a wrap. Today you heard my interview with Kate Sears of the Board of Supervisors for Marin County on her county's climate change lawsuit against Chevron. Make sure to catch the second half of that interview in the next episode of Connect the Dots. We'll get into the specific claims and find out how the Supreme Court could later be involved in that case. You also heard my short interviews with participants in the Disaster and Culture Conference held earlier at Friedrich Alexander University in Nuremberg, Germany. I want to thank the Center for Environmental Law at Loyola University and Friedrich Alexander University for funding my travel to Germany. That swanky music you heard at the midpoint of our episode was from D. Yankee. And our theme music, as always, by Lobo Loco. Take care. You've been
0: listening to Connect the Dots podcast by the Center for Progressive Reform. We're a legal policy center helping to build healthy communities, safe workplaces, and a more resilient planet. Check us out and subscribe to our podcast by visiting our website, www.progressivereform.org.
2: Thanks. See you there.